Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give your attention. Okay. You got my attention. I just hope nobody flushes the toilet during this phone hearing. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, hey. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico, still a hot spot for the coronavirus on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day. You know, kind of like the Supreme Court these days. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me... From Bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. On Monday this past week, the Supreme Court finally discovered 20th century technology. Our Supreme Court reporting friends Dahlia Lithwick and Mark Joseph Stern write this week at Slate.com. For the first time ever, the court held real-time oral arguments over the phone and on a live stream, allowing the public, everyone in the public, all at the same time, if you can imagine such a thing, to listen in, unfiltered, to the world in which law is made. Can you imagine? Lithwick and Stern observed that it was surreal and a bit awkward to hear the justices adapt in real time. Yes, they write, there were glitches, including a few dead seconds when Justice Sonia Sotomayor apparently forgot to unmute herself. The uh, normal free-for-all questions piled atop questions were replaced with rigidly structured colloquies in a preordained order. But on the whole, the grand experiment was a success, they write. A step forward for transparency that the justices may find difficult to reverse after the pandemic subsides. Well, that might be nice, but an upside to this uh, uh, horrific ongoing worsening, no matter how much right wingers are pretending it is over coronavirus disaster, may be that we finally get at least a little bit more transparency from the U.S. Supreme Court. Joining us now to discuss the Republicans 
stolen Supreme Court's new discovery of telephones and gasp live streaming of their audio is the great Dahlia Lithwick who covers justice and the courts and the law for Slate.com where she also hosts the podcast Amicus. Welcome back to the broadcast, Miss Lithwick. Hi, Brad. Thank you for having me. Uh, Great to have you here. As usual, too much to discuss with you today, including the uh, virtual SCOTUS, I guess we can call it that. But first, I I became uh, literally angry this week, Dahlia, when my phone started buzzing. That 87-year-old Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been, quote, hospitalized with an infection. Now, it turns out it was not the coronavirus, but it was a a gallbladder infection of some type uh, that they say will not require surgery. Uh, But at 87 years old and with a virus going around, I hear, even that is worrying. Uh, You're much better connected to the court than I am. What are you hearing from your sources about the health of RBG right now? And how concerned should we be? I, I mean, this is what the fourth hospitalization, you know, just this year. We've had a bunch of scares, and that's kind of par for the course when you're her age. Mm-hmm. But I think it does a couple of things. One, it reminds us that pinning all of our hopes on an octogenarian, you know, because we carry the tote bags and use the coffee mugs and we think she's a superhero. At some point, you know, the actuarial tables say this is a pretty scary way to be doing justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in a sort of really profound way, it, it, it kind of reminds us that the people who are getting just shredded by this virus are mm-hmm. That generation, you know, and we we sort of forget. We think like, oh, you know, these 20-year-olds are recovering from it. But the people, at least on my social media feed, you know, who Mm -hmm. are dying are are the 70 to 80-year-olds, the 90-year-olds, all the grandparents. And it it, it does make you realize how unbelievably susceptible the bulk Mm -hmm. of the Supreme Court is to this virus right now. So. I mean, my reporting is, look, she was in Johns Hopkins. I'm sorry. She was in Johns Hopkins for a couple of days. Um, Effective Friday morning. The last I've heard is that she is out. She's been discharged and that she's doing well. Uh, If you listened in to oral argument in the Little Sisters case, Mm -hmm. which is the uh, contraception mandate case on Wednesday, she was, you know, a force as usual, telephonically calling from her hospital bed. (laughs) But I I share your general feeling of, you know, your stomach is in knots constantly all year long that the fate of the republic in many ways um, rests on these very, you know, frail, if heroic shoulders. It's it's sobering. Yeah. I mean, I literally... I banged on the table when I saw that. It made me angry. And, you know, I don't... I and mean, when I saw, you know, Ginsburg and infection in the same uh, uh, iPhone alert coming over before I could actually click on it and read what happened, I, I don't agree with uh, UC Irvine election law professor Rick Hassan about everything. But every time, you know, that we hear about an illness for Justice Ginsburg, I'm reminded of his fury really, that RBG did not retire when she had the chance to be replaced by President Obama. And as much as I love her, and she remains an absolute powerhouse uh, uh, legally, judicially, constitutionally, Hassan was really right, wasn't he? She should have stepped down back then for, uh, frankly, the good 
of all of us, even if just for my heart not daring to give out every time I see an iPhone alert come in with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's name in it. I I mean, it's a long and really fraught conversation. And um, in some ways, I'm going to kind of end up right down the middle, which is to say, when you talk to Justice Ginsburg about why it is she didn't retire, Uh, Some of the answers are incredibly, uh, you know, frustrating because I think, you know, she she her her reflexive answer is because I knew I wouldn't be replaced by someone like me, you know, because Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't going to be me. And I think that that gets people like you and Rick Hassan a little crazy. (laughs) I, I will say she has some responses to this that I find really compelling, not the least of which includes, you know, nobody forced uh, John Paul Stevens, which was older than who was older than her. Nobody said he had to get off the court. Mm. Uh, You know, it it, it seems in her view, she sees this as a piece of acute sexism. And it's worth remembering, she remembers that Sandra Day O'Connor was essentially pushed off the court by then Chief Justice William Rehnquist, right? O'Connor goes to Rehnquist. Rehnquist is very, very sick. Uh, O'Connor says, look, I'm probably going to want to retire a year from now. And he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to stay on for a year. So you go now. Mm. She leaves before she's ready to leave. Right. Mm -hmm. This is to take care of her husband, John O'Connor, who's Mm -hmm. terribly sick. Mm -hmm. She leaves before she's ready to leave. And then Chief Justice goes and dies just a few short weeks after. Yeah. And I think that it felt to Ginsburg as though this, you know, this other woman, her closest friend on the court, got muscled off the court Mm. by a, a guy telling her what to do. And I think she resists the idea that anyone was going to tell her what to do. And I I guess the final thing I would say, and this is where I come right down the middle, she's the person who unerringly says, Brad, right or wrong, if you care about the court, vote like you care about it. This wasn't on me. This was on you. And (laughs) the fact that a lot of people didn't pull the lever for um, Hillary Clinton, because whatever reason, that's not her fault. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. I guess that is right down the middle. It's just it it is frustrating and it's scary. It is just terrifying, frankly, whenever that happens. All right. Let's go to the uh, virtual SCOTUS. Which, wait, wait, wait. Can yeah. I cut you off for one you, second? Yeah, of course. If you want to be super, super scared, you know, bear in mind that I don't. I don't want to be super scared. Please stop. <laughs> I don't. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. It's fine. No, there's just this ghoulish cult of Senate Republicans who are TikTok, you know, waiting, Grim Reaper-like, for her to uh, have something happen. And at that point, they abandon the Mitch McConnell rule that you can't confirm somebody in the president's last six months in office. And in fact, I think they're quite willing to say, we do it, you know, in in an appointment between the election and January. So there is a really ghoulish impulse on the other side that is waiting gleefully to fill that seat. That makes me yeah no i know (laughs) that's exactly where i am because i do realize that i do realize they'll have no problem violating the so-called mcconnell rule to do whatever the hell they want at this point so yeah it's it's like pins and needles for the next few months unfortunately uh not just because of the election itself but because of this as well all right so 
to that virtual SCOTUS after they uh, postponed about two months of oral arguments. They finally figured out how to hold such uh, hearings during a viral pandemic with several justices, yes, who are in their 80s and prime targets for COVID, as you mentioned, Dahlia Lithwick. They use something called a telephone conference call if you can imagine such a thing, and it was shared live. So, first burning question that all of America wants to know about all of this, Dahlia, do we yet know who is responsible for forgetting to mute during this toilet flush heard here? We're going to be saying, hey, call your congressman and uh, change these laws that apply to banks. And what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic, then the call is transformed. And it's, it's yes. a call that would have been allowed and it's no longer allowed. <laughs> so I'm not sure which case that was, to be frank. But um, if well, what's the inside poop on that toilet flush, Dahlia? You didn't just say inside poop on the toilet flush, did you? I, I'm afraid really? I'm afraid I did. <laughs> yes. I made the live streaming joke this morning on the same Flushgate um, conversation, <laughs> so I'm going to let it all go. Um, we actually still, I think, do not know um, which justice flushed their toilet in the midst of that. Was the second argument uh, on Wednesday after the Little Sisters? Okay. Um, it. Uh, is really the flush heard around the world and uh, greater greater investigative journalists than I, including Slate's own um, Ashley Feinberg, is doing all sorts of like splitting of audio and she's convinced she's going to figure out who it was. Oh, good, um, good. We don't yet know who did it, but I will say I think probably the Chief Justice is very aggrieved about the fact that <laughs> that was the takeaway this week. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I, I hope Slate can get to the bottom of that, so to speak. All right. Beyond that, let's uh, let's be beyond that hiccup. I guess we can call it uh, politely. The court, yes, did hear several cases this past week for the first time in history, live at least via audio. So, uh, how did it go? I can I can tell that both you and our friend Mark Joseph Stern uh, seem pretty jazzed about it. Actually, uh, at least after the first day, did that continue throughout the week? Yeah. I mean, I think I would divide um, my response into kind of two buckets. Mm -hmm. One is the one that you started with, which is, yay, transparency, any transparency, all transparency, transparency good. You know, it is, a, a frankly, a sin that one of the three branches of government that works for us, right, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, forces you to stand in line for days sometimes to get in to hear five minutes of oral arguments. And mm -hmm. so I've been uh, for 20 years, my entire career saying not only should we have same day audio, we should have video. There's no excuse for any of this. And so I think we could stipulate right off that anything, even though it's hilarious, you know, uh, 1997 conference call technology <laughs> is better, vastly better than what we've had till now. Mm -hmm. That said, I think Mark and I were ambivalent not about the existence of uh, uh, the live audio, but it's very much a shift in format. In order to do this in an orderly way, Brad, they mm -hmm. have to have the chief justice calling on every single justice in order of seniority. Mm -hmm. So usually when you go sit and you watch an oral argument, the advocates start, the justices jump in, there's no order, there's no constraint, there are lines, sort of through lines of questioning. So if 
Justice Alito says something and Kagan wants to pick up on it and Sotomayor wants to pick up on that. There's just a sense of, you know, it's it's like dodgeball. Everyone's going at once, but ideas and themes can be developed kind of organically. Mm-hmm. Here you have a sequence of back and forths and then the chief cuts it off and calls on the next person. Now, the good news in all this is that suddenly Clarence Thomas, yeah. who has not asked, you know, questions in years, yeah. is asking questions in every single argument. And that's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. And it's really, really good to have his voice in there. The bad thing, and I think Mark and I touched on this on Monday, is that it cuts off a certain organic flow. It means that the chief justice has an outsized role in kind of traffic copping. Mm. And that if you are one of the justices who, by seniority, someone like uh, Justice Gorsuch or Kavanaugh, where you're at the very, very end of the argument, Mm -hmm. you really kind of can't get your ideas into the mix until the last five minutes. Mm. And so it's, it's very, very fundamentally changing the way the conversation happens. But I say that as a huge co to my larger initial point, which is it's just really important that America can turn on C-SPAN and mm-hmm. hear arguments and follow cases. And for that, I am so grateful that I will put up with traffic copying and even toilet flushing. It's all just <laughs> worth it. And and uh, in theory, after, a, a, who knows, a month or two of this experiment, uh, if, if people sort of become used to this, there's really nothing to keep them from when they do whenever, and I don't know that it's going to be quite as soon as people think, but whenever they resume actual arguments at the court, if they're still opposed to allowing cameras in there, might this uh, experiment show us that, well, we can at least allow audio, live audio argument to stream out, and then we'd really have the best of both worlds because we'd have the audio and we could return to the to the previous uh, sort of interrupty arguments that uh, that you seem to prefer. Well, I, I think your, your presumption would be correct in any other universe. Uh, in any other <laughs> universe, you have this natural experiment in, hey, we really resisted doing this. We tried it. It worked. Uh, everybody liked it. Nobody was embarrassed. We should keep doing it when life returns to normal. Mm-hmm. But this isn't an ordinary universe. This is the U.S. Supreme Court that is completely in charge yeah. of its own public appearance. And so my money, quite frankly, is on the opposite happening, which is having tried it, having succeeded, having had a sense that the public was engaged and interested, that no bad thing, notwithstanding Flushgate, happened. I think the court could nevertheless say, well, that was fun. Now let's go back to the old way. And I just think that we always forget how weirdly revanchist and backward looking the court is. And I think that the impulse will be, hey, that was fun. You know, let's never do that again. And and we could see that. And I just feel like I want to caution folks who think, hey, this was a step in the right direction. Maybe it will be continued in perpetuity to realize that the court doesn't necessarily operate on that kind of linear logic. No, they don't. But I'm, I mean, I'm hoping that they learn that the world did not end when they live streamed their audio and that, you know, if they're still uh, against going to cameras in the court, that at least the audio is sort of a nice accommodation that doesn't at least seem yet to, uh, I guess one of their fears is that the cameras, they claim, you know, that attorneys will start playing for the cameras and all of that. Uh, Have we seen anything akin to that from the attorneys or from the uh, 
justices themselves that they are playing to the microphone, so to speak? Not at all. And I, I think I would even say it's been very interesting to watch how quickly the justices have adapted to this new format. And, you know, shout out here to Elena Kagan, who quickly, very, very quickly, I think within three days, figured out that if she was going to do this and mm-hmm. it was going to be kind of cabined by amount of time and she wasn't going to be able to do a sort of flow of questions, then she was going to just do rat-tat-tat, short, very direct questions. Mm. She has really, I think... Um, mastered how to shift into this new audio format. And I think that, you know, Justice Breyer, probably less so, long, 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 multi-part hypotheticals. Mm. Um, But I do think that generally they have, you know, with a handful of slip-ups and a a little bit of confusion, I think that they have adapted beautifully. And one would hope that if the lesson here is, look, we didn't want to be ridiculous, we didn't want either us to play out in front of the cameras or attorneys to play out in front of the cameras. None of that has happened. And and I think in a really deep way, when public confidence in the other two branches of government is almost completely gone, Mm -hmm. there's something unbelievably comforting, Brad, about Mm. the just boring, pedantic, (laughs) footnote-checking, doctrinal conversations. I felt my blood pressure just plummet Hmm. because it was like, oh, there are grown-ups doing grown-up work. And I wonder if maybe some part of them realizes that that kind of visibility, particularly in a time of crisis, is aggregate good for everybody in this hmm. country, and I hope they really see that. I do, too. Uh, by the way, Daya, last time we had you on, if I recall, you, you discussed your personal boycott of the court, explaining why you had not been back in person since the seating of uh, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Is that the case still, and does attending the uh, virtual SCOTUS uh, violate your personal boycott, Dahlia? You know, it's so interesting that you... <laughs> you um ask because nobody actually has yet mentioned or noticed that <laughs> after sort of a year and a half of me not covering the court, yeah. um, I was, you know, writing about arguments on Monday. So you, you win for having sort of caught me out in it. And I Finally, and I, I, I wanted something sort of... this week. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I can't say I've really got a fully articulable answer other than, <laughs> I, you know, for me, I think it was just a real discomfort of being in that chamber and doing business as usual for all mm-hmm. the reasons we talked about last time we talked about this. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the great Democratic, you know, we're all listening on C-SPAN in our, in our fuzzy slippers that makes it feel profoundly different to mm-hmm. me. Um, I think I felt this week as though history was being made. And if you are a court dork, history really was made this week. And so I felt okay covering both uh, Monday's uh, uh, Booking.com and Wednesday's Little Sisters argument just because it really felt as though all of America was in that courtroom Mm. uh, in a really, really different way than the sort of privileged world I was squawking about last time we spoke. But I I think I want to reserve the right to say I'm going to give it a think over the weekend and get back to you about how this all fits uh, in my sort of boycott universe. I I will overlook your hypocrisy in uh, enjoying the uh, courts this week. Uh, So they started with, uh, you mentioned, a pretty straightforward case. U.S. Patent and Trademark Office versus Booking.com. Basically, a simple case uh, where Booking.com is saying they should they they ought to be allowed to uh, trademark that name, Booking.com. But the uh, Patent Office says you can't. Uh, if I'm understanding this, that you can't 
trademark simple words like booking, and they say, well, we've added .com, so that means it's patentable or trademarkable. That was the one they started with, and uh, I guess uh, because it was so simple, is, is that why they started with it? Because it was pretty straightforward case as sort of their experiment out of the box? I think so. I think it was, uh, you know, other than if you're in the sort of patent bar, not a, a, a big ticket case, certainly super, super interesting and led to lots of funny discussions mm-hmm. of like Waffle House and Crab Shacks and Lisa Blatt, right. one of the attorneys who argued just rollicking good time. Uh, so I think that there was a real reason to do a kind of low stakes case uh, mm-hmm. in case it, you know, the wheels came off. Right. Uh, but I, I don't I don't know that, um, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that uh, Mark Stern and I actually talked about on my podcast this week is we don't quite know why they held over some of the cases that would have been heard in the two months that the court was closed. Mm-hmm. Of those cases that are going to be held over and not heard till next fall, one of the most important is the Affordable Care Act, right? The challenge from Texas and other states that seeks to just end the ACA altogether. Mysteriously, the court should have been hearing that this spring and (laughs) held it over to next fall. So it probably won't be decided till after the election. So for me, it's just really illustrative of there was some very, very tactical and strategic thinking that Mm. went into huh, what are we going to hear now and what are we going to hold off on? And the fact that in the middle of, uh, you know, pandemic, uh, a case that threatens to end uh, Obamacare for everybody got held till after the summer, uh, I think is is at least worth noting. It is worth noting. I mean, it's interesting. In one sense, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they, they are pushing that down the line in case they decide to gut the entire Affordable Care Act. I'd rather that be later down the road rather than now. On the other hand, it sure is helpful for the uh, for the president of the United States to not have uh, the court come out and gut the Affordable Care Act right in the middle of his election. So I guess that sort of cuts both ways. But there are a number of other cases um, uh, that, that they've had to push down the road. Some they haven't. They're usually quite strict about hitting their end of June schedule for releasing their opinions so that, uh, you know, they can get out to their three month summer break uh, is is that being now pushed back um, are some of those cases being heard I think is the Donald Trump tax case being pushed down the road or will that be actually heard this session no that will be heard they're still hearing some really big I, I, I it's worth stepping back and realizing because you're absolutely right I, I think that even absent COVID even absent you know the Donald Trump mayhem this would have been one of the biggest terms of our lifetimes, Mm -hmm. the court already had had heard and still has not decided this major Title VII case, right, this major, major DACA Mm -hmm. case about whether the president can rescind DACA, Mm -hmm. June Medical, that's the abortion case that sort of seeks to end whole women's health. All of those are still percolating. None of those have been decided. And then you're quite right. In addition to that, the court this week heard this Little Sisters case, which is the contraception mandate and the exemption for religious uh, entities that don't want to provide contraception for workers. It's the follow-on to Hobby Lobby. Mm-hmm. It's a big, big deal. And then, as you say, those those financial records cases, the three consolidated cases, are all being heard. Um, the faithless electors case is being heard, which could have mm. a huge impact uh, yeah. on the November election. I don't see any way 
is the short answer to your question, that the court is done with uh, all of the decisions by the last day of June. I think that adding on this extraordinary May session and the amount of cases, big, big cases, that still have not come down tells me I guess if you're not going to your fabulous chalet in Switzerland for the summer, right. maybe you can just take the summer to write. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we're going to, this case is going to, this term is going to go way beyond J- July. Yeah, yeah, they got nowhere to go anyway. So stay in session, stay in court and, and get at least some of these huge, uh, huge things done. I do want to uh, leave a few moments uh, to talk about uh, your, uh, your article on these anti-lockdown protests. Uh, may have to take a quick break and come back for that. But uh, but first, since we mentioned Little Sisters of the Poor, these are the nuns that have been arguing, if I understand this, that they have been arguing against having to opt out of the Obamacare mandate that employer health insurer uh, health insurer insurance programs include con- contraception. If I recall, they feel that being allowed to opt out for their employees actually violates their religious, their freedom of religion. Am, am I remembering that case correctly? Yeah, this was, you know, after Hobby Lobby, you'll mm-hmm. recall that um, when the Obama administration sort of in the ACA created this mandate that said as part of your basic contraceptive preventative care package, you had access to uh, a an insurance plan that paid for your contraceptive care. And you'll remember that Hobby Lobby, the court said, oh, oh, if you are, you know, a for-profit, closely held corporation, in that case, it was the Hobby Lobby stores and Conestoga cabinets, uh, you can actually get the same opt-out that the churches and the religious universities and religious hospitals get. In other words, you can be treated as though you are a religious entity, too. And you're quite right, Brad. This was the follow-on. The case was Zubik in 2016, where the Little Sisters and other groups said, but I don't want to fill out that form in which I self-certify that I object to uh, covering contraception because in so doing, I'm nevertheless triggering a chain of events that ends up with my workers getting contraceptive care. So even the opt-out, even the kind even of though they're allowed, constructed. Even though they're allowed already to uh, not have to supply the contraception, they're saying just the act of having to sign a piece of paper saying we opt out is in itself an infringement on their li- religious liberties. Right. And and that it triggers, um, you know, what they say are these abortifacients, you know, these contraceptive devices, in their view, triggers an abortion. It becomes a little more complicated. So in Zubik in 2016, the court had to face this issue. But as you'll recall, Justice Scalia died. And so mm-hmm. the court sort of kicked it back to the lower courts. There was no five votes to do anything. So this case comes back four years later, except now the Trump administration in 2017, Donald Trump takes office and says, I'm going to expand the numbers of groups that are exempted. I'm not just going to exempt, you know, the handful of of entities that were already getting an accommodation. I'm going to say, not only can you uh, say, I don't want to provide this, but you can also do it not just for more for religious reasons, but now, quote unquote, moral reasons, which we don't even know what that means. (laughs) And so the case is a little bit of a thicket, A, because we've suddenly got moral objectors, whatever that means. And secondly, because 
the the Trump administration, when they put this into effect at HHS, they do it in a sort of a hashy, lackadaisical, typical way. They don't go through the sort of uh, uh, Administrative Procedures Act as the actual formal uh, uh, steps that they're supposed to go through when they make a change, when they create new exemptions. And so part of this case gets really bogged down in, did they do this incorrectly or did they do it in their usual slapdash fashion? And that's, you know, the state of Pennsylvania is saying, look, we're the plaintiffs in this case because we're going to get a whole bunch of women who can't have access to contraception and we're going to have to pay at some point for their medical care. That's the the case. But Mm -hmm. part of the case really is this very, very technical procedural question about whether the administrative steps were, were followed through. And I guess I can just say, based on oral argument, it looked like the usual, you know, four more conservative justices willing absolutely to side with the Little Sisters and to sort of expand much more so the category of people who get these exemptions, the four liberal justices, as you can imagine, saying, wait, uh, on its own terms, Obamacare says that you have access to contraceptive care. And then interestingly, Chief Justice John Roberts coming out somewhere in the middle, at least implying an oral argument that he thinks that these new Trump regulations sweep too far. So who knows what's going to happen? But as you pointed out at the beginning, I think this is kind of a big deal of a case if you mm-hmm. look at these religious liberty claims. Uh, and I think it got a little bit drowned out, so to speak, uh, by Fleshgate. <laughs> well, uh, I guess it will come uh, roaring back uh, when when the opinion comes down. And it's just confounding that we're still having this same argument four years later and in the middle of a pandemic of all uh, moments. Uh, Dahlia, let me take a, a quick break. I've got uh, not nearly enough time to talk to you about uh, this article of yours, Whose Freedom Counts, but it sort of plays in actually to this uh, Little Sisters argument in one sense. It's the, 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 the tension between the freedom to and the freedom of, so to speak. We'll talk about that in a, min- in a minute because I want to... It's a great article, and it's a really important uh, question you raise at this time. And so I at least want to talk about it very quickly with you. Uh, We'll take a quick break and come back with Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the Supreme Court and much more for Slate.com. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with the delightful Dahlia Lithwick, who uh, covers justice and the courts and the law for Slate.com. She also hosts her own podcast, Amicus, which you can also download and listen to at Slate.com. She writes uh, what I think is an important article this week that we don't have nearly enough time to talk about, but I want to toss it out here. Uh, She uh, writes about lawsuits demanding that states 
stay-at-home orders be replaced, uh, be repealed, I'm sorry, have been filed this week in several different states. Uh, in Michigan, a, a family dollar store security guard was shot after telling a customer to wear a face mask. In Oklahoma, McDonald's employees were shot at for asking customers to leave the dining area, which was closed because of virus restrictions. Uh, we've been seeing these small uh, protests, armed protests, actually seeing, you know, armed, masked men come into the uh, Michigan State House protesting against stay-at-home orders. And uh, up in Wisconsin, of course, naturally, at the Supreme Court there, they're even uh, raising the idea that these um, restrictions are tyranny and they compared them to Japanese internment. One of the uh, right-wing justices on that court raised uh, uh, the Korematsu case as if this is some sort of, you know, tyranny being carried out by Democrats trying to control the population. Of course, the president of the United States himself has been calling for the liberation of states. And I should note uh, late today, uh, adding to that list, a Fox News exclusive reported that Republican Congress members are now introducing a resolution in Congress urging the corrupt Attorney General Bill Barr to review coronavirus lockdown orders, decrying them as draconian measures. Dialithwick writes, it's certainly not the case that the federal constitution protects everything you feel like doing whenever you feel like doing it. And in fact, she goes on to explain that there is uh, something that these anti-lockdown protesters do not seem to understand about their favorite two words, freedom and liberty. Okay, Dahlia Lithwick, I will bite. Uh, how have these protesters misunderstood what freedom and liberty mean in this country? As demanded, they will tell you by our founders, most of whom actually owned slaves, but never mind that obvious <laughs> and hypocritical paradox for the moment. Well, actually, that's exactly that's exactly where I uh, almost wanted to begin, which mm -hmm. is that it's really, really complicated when Americans talk about freedom and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that um, and, and here I was really um, riffing off an amazing article in The Atlantic by Ibram X. Kendi, mm -hmm. who talks about how the Constitution itself is a sort of clash of two different values about freedom. Mm -hmm. And he describes the slaveholders as thinking really uh, about freedom too, that what they wanted was to have the freedom to enslave people, the freedom mm -hmm. to demean people, exploit people, you know, disenfranchise people. That's how they saw freedom. That wasn't freedom from mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and he sort of posits that this idea, which kind of pulls through from the southern slaveholding value of freedom, mm -hmm. that that's in direct tension with this other idea of freedom from, right? Freedom from oppression, freedom from, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, exploitation, and freedom from, in this case, uh, a horrible pandemic that could kill us. And so, actually, your point that the framers, when they were architecting, to use Ivanka's word, the idea of freedom, <laughs> they were really eliding the fact that there's a real difference from freedom from values and freedom to values and that this movement out there that says 
I don't have to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Somehow I have a constitutional right to take a gun into the Capitol. Those are freedom to values, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they subordinate huge masses of people who actually want to be free from those very things. And so he riffs on that and then I riff on his riff. And Mm -hmm. I think the sort of larger point is that these are a lot of the same arguments that people make about the Second Amendment, that they want to be free to parade around a restaurant, open carrying, and they don't realize that freedom for a lot of Americans is freedom from the terror of that act. Yeah. The freedom from being shot uh, is also a freedom that seems to be overlooked so often in these arguments. Uh, Kendi notes that the tension, another way to look at it is uh, the tension between individual freedoms and community freedoms and uh, individual freedom to do something versus the community's freedom from the so-called freedoms of the individual. So we have a freedom to uh, not be sickened by someone who refuses to wear a mask. It seems to me in recent years uh, that much of the emphasis has been on the freedom to rather than the freedom from. How are the courts uh, generally supposed to balance uh, those two ideas? They're both in the Constitution, as I understand it, um, although right-wingers seem to forget about the freedom from part of this uh, matter. How are the courts uh, generally supposed to balance freedom to versus freedom from? Or they, or are they, uh, as these right-wingers, sort of more concerned about the freedom to and seem to forget about the freedom from? Well, that's why I loved your segue from the Little Sisters case, because I think that that is a really emblematic Mm -hmm. new trend where we're seeing these religious freedom claims under, Mm -hmm. you know, RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or under the First Amendment. We are seeing these claims that say, my freedom to X somehow subordinates and dominates your freedom to, in the Little Sisters context, to have access to a statutory entitlement to contraception. Mm -hmm. Uh, My freedom to X, discriminate against people that I don't want to bake a wedding cake for, somehow is more important than your freedom from discrimination Mm -hmm. based on, uh, you know, any sort of uh, identifiable uh, class. And so I think you're exactly right. I think this is attention that is kind of permeating the way the courts are looking at a lot of values. And I think it's just been the case for a very long time that the courts try to think about, of course, you have the freedom to do all sorts of things under the guise of, you know, your own religious conscience, but you do not have the freedom to hurt other people. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I think, in the religious context, you certainly didn't have the freedom to pass off all the costs of your religious conscience onto third parties, right? Onto women who are not adherents to your faith, Mm -hmm. who are simply cleaning your floors or working at your stores. Uh, So that's really new. And I think you're quite right to say that that is an inflection point that we're seeing in jurisprudence right now 
where the freedom to do all sorts of things uh, is starting to really dominate the freedom from, and it probably goes without saying, but let's go ahead and say it, (laughs) that it does seem as though if you are a straight, white, Christian male, you have a lot of freedom too. Uh, Even now, if you are protesting in the Capitol in Mm -hmm. Michigan, if you're a white guy with a gun, your freedom too XYZ is predominant. And if you are an African-American out for a jog, your freedom from being executed summarily doesn't seem to matter. And so I think part of the problem with this sort of thumb on the scale for freedom to claimants Mm -hmm. is that it's not distributed equally across race, class, gender or economic well-being. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic. And as I said, we weren't going to have enough time to really dig into it. But I I do hope people uh, uh, look at your article on this whose freedom counts at slate dot com, because I think it is important. And it sort of goes through really all of the cases that we're seeing uh, come before the Supreme Court. And it's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, Dahlia, you conclude that article by saying when you hear someone demanding inchoate generalized freedom ask whether he cares at all that millions of workers who clean the zoos and buff the nails and intubate the grandmas are not free these people are cannon fodder for your liberty in addition to parsing whether we as a collective do better in providing the freedom from while also offering some freedom to it's worth asking whether those making zero-sum claims about liberty are willing to sacrifice anything for freedom or are just happily sacrificing you. I think that's a really important point to make as uh, all of this uh, plays out in the weeks ahead, because I think these um, protests are going to get worse, not better, even as uh, coronavirus gets worse, not better in this country. Dahlia Lithwick, you are always brilliant, and it's always great to uh, speak with you about uh, so much of your work. Folks can find your work, of course, at Slate.com. They can find you on the Twitters at Dahlia Lithwick. And, of course, they can hear much, much more of you on your podcast, Amicus, which is available at a podcast site near you or also at Slate.com. Thanks so much for joining us again today, Dahlia. Always great speaking with you. It's always a pleasure, Brad. Thank you for having me. You bet. Okay, let's take a quick break. A couple of uh, updates. Oh, and some breaking news out of the White House because, of course... Quick break, and we're back with that and a little bit more. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at... I like that. Yeah. That's kind of jaunty, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Uh, good selection. Hi, how are you, by the way? Didn't get to say hello to you earlier. Doing Had just to get fine. right to Dahlia. Yeah. I know. Busy day. Uh, for a change? Uh, it is. Yeah. Busy day. Uh, this, uh, just in, Vice President Mike Pence's press secretary, Katie Miller. CNN has just confirmed has tested positive for the coronavirus. Miller is now the second White House staff member 
known to have tested positive for the coronavirus over the past week after one of Trump's personal valets tested positive on Thursday. The president claims that Miller has not come into contact with him, but noted that she has been in contact with Pence. So you got that? He, he hasn't seen her. We shouldn't worry. He's fine. Pence's press secretary may have it, but he hasn't seen her. So everybody's fine, and there's nothing you should worry about. And right. Of course, you know. Except for Katie Miller. She happens to be married to Donald Trump's senior advisor, Stephen Miller. Oh. Who I suspect Trump has come in close contact with lately. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Interesting little development once they finally named her. They had named her earlier in the well, they had said earlier in the day that a Pence staffer has tested positive, but they didn't say who it was. Now it has been confirmed it was Stephen Miller's wife. Yes, and apparently uh, that was something that Trump himself divulged. He was just chatting in the Oval Office in, uh, with the press scrum there, and he just happened to mention her name. And a couple of folks on Twitter were like, ah, dude, you just did a personnel health care issue that you just announced who it was publicly? Is that how it came out? She, He had just uh, tossed he her name out there? He just tossed her name out, yeah. He's a genius. Uh, anyway, she uh, was also, in addition to being in contact with the vice president and probably in contact with her husband, who was in contact with the president, she was also frequently in contact with members of the press. And the White House is now making coronavirus testing available to journalists. How thoughtful of them. The announcement came uh, following an hour-long delay to Pence's uh, Friday morning flight to Iowa, where, I should note, the Des Moines Register reported today that more than 1,000 workers at the Tyson food plant in Waterloo have now tested positive for the coronavirus, according to a county public health leader. Now, that is a horrific number, 1,000 workers. But making this even more horrific, it is more than double the number that the denialist Republican governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, had said just the day before. Oh. The news came as the Arkansas-based company reopened the plant on Thursday, just one day earlier after a two-week closure following a spike in COVID-19 cases there. Governor Reynolds said on Wednesday that just 444 workers at the Tyson Waterloo plant had tested positive. She said that they were among a total of 1,653 meatpacking plant workers who tested positive at four plants across the state. Joshua Picora disease surveillance and investigation manager in Black Hawk County, where the Waterloo plant is located, said the governor's numbers for Waterloo reflected tests conducted only at the Tyson plant, not at health facilities elsewhere. The county has recorded 21 deaths tied to COVID-19. Chris Schwartz, a Black Hawk County supervisor, voiced surprise at the number of positive tests he said it's really high. It's surprising to hear those numbers on the same day that they are reopening the plant. Of course, they were reopening the plant because Donald Trump has been ordering meatpacking plants to be reopened, no matter how many people might be getting sick and dying because they work there. Gotta have those cheeseburgers, you know. 
And of course, Donald Trump doesn't work in a meatpacking plant, so he doesn't really give a damn. However, he does work in the White House where the coronavirus now seems to be creeping in. During that hour-long delay to Pence's Friday morning flight before his trip to Iowa, where I bet he will not be inspecting the meatpacking plants. Just a (laughs) guess. And if he does, he certainly will not be doing so without a mask, as he did at the uh, Mayo Clinic a few days ago. Uh, Anyway, right uh, during that uh, delay, individuals were seen exiting Air Force Two before the plane lifted off. Uh, A senior administration official told the press pool aboard Air Force Two that a Pence staffer, who they did not name at the time, had tested negative for the coronavirus on Thursday, but positive for the virus on Friday morning. And that would be Katie Miller. She was not on the plane. Uh, She had possibly, however, been in contact with six people who were scheduled to fly on that trip. Those six people were then removed before takeoff, according to a senior administration official. There was also some uh, officials on that uh, flight, including uh, Republic, Iowa's Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, Ag- Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, and Congresswoman Joni Ernst. They were on Air Force Two with Pence for this trip. I guess they were not among the uh, six who had been in direct contact with Katie Miller, but whether they had been in contact with the vice president or Purdue or Grassley or Ernst, we don't yet know. The pool was told later on Friday afternoon that everyone who deplaned had been tested for the coronavirus and had tested negative, at least for now anyway. it As you know, the uh, incubation period is anywhere between five and two weeks Five days and two um, five, weeks. Five days and two weeks. So uh, who knows if they will continue to be tested and find out, in fact, they had become uh, infected. And, so. of course, they're able to get access to tests and get tested daily at the White House, apparently, whereas nobody else can mm-hmm. get them. Yeah, it's nice. Even when they haven't been, uh, they're showing no symptoms at all, they are immediately able to get tests. Must be nice. Yes, must be nice. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see. Donald Trump uh, has not really given a damn about the victims in all of this. He just wants to get his economy open so he can win re-election. Wonder if things will change if people at the White House start coming, you know, people at the, close to him, his valet, press secretary for the vice president, you know, now that they're in close contact with these folks if uh, we start to see the virus more and more inside the White House. I wonder how that will change things, if it will change things, or if Donald Trump will be insisting that everything be opened up right away and, you know, be going around the country ordering governors like this uh, Kim Reynolds in uh, Iowa, who probably didn't need any orders because she's a wingnut anyway, with thousands. I mean, huge hotspots in her own state for the coronavirus, and she just can't wait to fling open the doors for businesses, including in the meatpacking plants, where we have literally thousands now, thousands of infections. So we'll see if that continues and if we continue to see more of those protests and so forth we were talking about with uh, with Dahlia Lithwick. Uh, Also, one quick update here on a story that we covered on our previous broadcast, where in the state of Arizona, 
their wingnut governor, Doug Ducey, had suddenly uh, instructed two dozen university experts who had been working on COVID modeling for the state for free at Arizona State University and University of Arizona to stand down from their work after their models all showed infections in the state dramatically increasing if Governor Ducey reopened businesses and lifted the stay-at-home orders before the end of May, which, of course, he announced he would be doing. He announced it on the same day that Donald Trump had come out to Arizona uh, as, a, I guess, a gift to Doug Ducey for reopening the state and uh, putting all of its residents in danger. Anyway, according to the Arizona Republic, soon after Ducey's revised order for reopening and Trump's arrival in the state, Arizona cases increased from roughly 250 a day to 450 a day. And the death rate spiked from about 10 to 20 a day to more than 30. And that trend is now upward, as the university scientists predicted that it would be, even as more businesses were opened at the same time. Well, now, thanks to pressure, thanks to public pressure, after the story was reported by the Arizona Republic and uh, pressure from Democratic lawmakers, including U.S. Uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema, Apparently, the Arizona Department of Health Services has reversed their stand-down order for the universities, and they have announced that they will continue an ongoing partnership with the university experts who were producing COVID-19 modeling before being told on Monday by the department to pause their work. Well, at least there's that. Some public pressure made a difference. That's it, good to know. It it uh, It is good to know. And one more here. This is regarding my recent conversation with American Prospect's David Dayen concerning the White House's strong arming of the U.S. Postal Service, which has said they may shut down entirely as early as June if they do not get an infusion of cash. Well, Congress approved an extension of their credit limit so they can borrow another $10 billion from the U.S. Treasury, which is uh, strong-arming the USPS to make a bunch of changes before they will give them, before they will loan them the money. A Daily Coast commenter who calls himself ex-naval officer writes in in response to that show to say, I work for the Postal Service. I am the postmaster for my town. The past month I have witnessed so much hatred being directed at my staff by the segment of our town who watch Fox News. People are yelling at us for wearing masks. Oh, my goodness. I have had all I can tolerate, and on Monday I submitted my paperwork to retire. I had planned on working several more years, but F this, says the ex-naval officer. Well, I am very sorry to hear that. I've tried to reach out to him to see if he's willing to come on the show and talk about the situation. So far, I've yet to hear back. I will let you know when and if I do and if he is willing to join us. Got to get out. My yep. thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Dahlia Lithwick of Slate.com, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. We've got years of them there for you. That is, of course, made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you for uh, keeping us 100% listener supported. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. 
We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.